Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. I was just thinking I should add it to Two Pastors Take a Pathetic Run, Make a Podcast, and Eat a Donut, because that's what happens. Listen, there's pollen everywhere, and it's raining, and... You know, we have excuses. We have good excuses for our <laughs> sorry run. I know. But I just think it's funny that we took a run and then ate a donut because <laughs> life is full of contradictions. Listen, <laughs> I am perfectly fine with the name Two Pastors Eat Donuts, Drink Coffee, and, and Make, make a, a podcast. podcast. Yeah, that's good. So what is astonishing you this morning other than the warm vanilla-coated salted caramel drizzle donut? Donut, yes. Yeah. Well, um... Every year, the same thing happens. Every year, I'm irritated. And that is every year, the week after Easter, I walk into some store and I see a big sign that says Easter clearance sale. And I'm irritated by it. And I get that stores need to clear their shelves. They need to get rid of things. I get it. I get it. I get it. But the message is, hey, nothing really happened on Easter. There's nothing to see here. Like life after death or life conquering death, it's a nice metaphor. But all this business about someone really conquering death and rising from the dead... Uh, no, it's just a metaphor. So let's just go on with life as usual. Let's go back to business as usual. Let's go back to our regular programming. Let's go back to all the junk we see on the news. Nothing to see here. And I'm irritated by it every year. And I'm astonished that even though the world, it seems like everyone, I know that's a real exaggeration. It seems like everyone around me seems to be saying, okay, Easter was nice, but let's get back to real life. I think and deeply believe that because Jesus is risen, that something deep and fundamental and real has changed in the world. And again, I know it's hard to believe that when you know, I, I, I'm just getting back to Charlotte from Atlanta where I went to see my parents. And, you know, I sit down, turn on the television, and the first news story was of a youth sports coach who is in trouble because on his social media or somewhere, he's he says he was joking, but he's on the phone using the N-word. And he is a youth sports coach, a white man um, coaching black kids. The second story was from a middle school in the Atlanta area where this girl, a black girl, was being teased by some of her classmates. And one of them said, well, how much for this slave? And another classmate gives a price. And then the classmate says, well, I'm going to buy her. And then says, inward, you're my slave for the rest of the day. You've got to do what I say for the rest of the day. When you see those kinds of stories on the news, in addition to all the things that's going on in our politics, I can see why people would question if this celebration that we call Easter, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, makes any difference.
I believe that because Jesus is risen from the dead, that new creation really has broken into the world. It's small, like a mustard seed, but it is here. And the day is coming when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And I'm astonished by the faith that God has given me to believe that um, because I know it's not my own doing that I believe it. Well, I am grateful and astonished by your faith and I am deeply saddened by what those two news stories reveal as happening to children, um, black and white predominant. I mean, most centering the black children, but also the white children who are being fed these kinds of toxic worldviews by adults in their lives. Um, but I got to push back hard on being annoyed at the Easter clearance sales at the stores because I, I think it's just not the store's responsibility to share the message of Easter and I don't expect them to get it. And I think, you know, it's, it's important for us. It was funny because last week in our newsletter, um, which is going to be late this week. Sorry, friends. Uh, we titled it don't come for the show on Easter. And this week, um, I'm titling it do come for the show. Cause I think, you know, we talk sometimes about how we wish we could move to a country where nobody celebrated Christmas and what it would be like to celebrate the nativity when it just wasn't this commercialized ridiculousness. And I think, you know, the gift is we do get to celebrate Easter um, without any um, participation or distortion by, you know, the consumer juggernaut that is faith in America, because yes, American commercial faith has moved on and American civic religion has moved on and certainly, you know, all the marketing opportunities for Easter are over. And, and I think that's great because now we um, can have the conversation about what does it mean to say Easter isn't a day. It's a, it's the hinge point of history and we are living out resurrection life. And there's no, there's no institution that can tell us how to do that or give us authority or, or a, wit- a witness. Honestly, I think, you know, most of the stories that we can point to of how people are living, um, living with resurrection life, um, it's, it's happening, you know, from the outside and the edges and coming up. And so I, I think it's just kind of exciting, you know, to use it as a sermon illustration and say, hey, you know, we we aren't done with this and this isn't done with us um and you know there was a holiday and now we have you know a whole a whole life on the other side of easter like i i think that's actually you know really really exciting to say not just you know there's a 50 days of an easter festival but you know every day of our lives is um lived out of the revelation and the life that broke into the world um on resurrection day. And, uh, so yeah, so I, I, I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not, a, there <laughs> far be it for me to not be annoyed by something. Cause I am a <laughs> champion at getting annoyed, <laughs> but that's actually doesn't annoy me. Cause, um, I like the half price Cadbury eggs <laughs> and, so uh, wrong. um, what Cadbury eggs. Ugh. Oh, well, I love you anyway, <laughs> as, 
Olivia's mother. I thought that was say. the end of our friendship right there. No, that's <laughs> yeah. So, oh well, I I hear you, but you 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 may have inspired a good uh, entry point to uh, children's sermon on Sunday. That's that's nice. Very good. That's so nice. so what's astonishing you? Um, well, I mean, I think sort of relatedly, we all week have been um, doing a the public schools are on spring break this week. And so we've been doing a spring break vacation Bible school and on our campus in our community. And, you know, it is, um, hard work, um, particularly, you know, the Monday after Easter to be, you know, at the church at, you know, seven fifteen, like scurrying around and getting things ready and just sort of, you know, inviting all the different people in and, coordinating schedules and then trying to get the word out, um, especially beyond our own community to invite folks in. I mean, it's really hard work, but I um, am so grateful for it. Like this opportunity twice a year to, to just sort of have this little pop-up community with its own culture and rhythm and just to see the the joy of what it's like um, to bring people together and say, like, we don't have any purpose for one another. We don't have any agenda for one another. We're just here to hear the good news of Jesus, um, to um, play with that good news through, you know, making art and making music and wondering about the stories and um, playing games together and to share meals together. And, and I just, um, I don't know, I love it. And to me, like thinking about it's one of those things that flies under the radar, like we live in a world in general, and sadly, and particularly, um, a church world that I think really discounts often anything that has to do with children as just being kind of like JV league and not important and not real ministry. Um, but I think it's such an amazing privilege with these um, young ones and little ones to be able to say, Hey, your whole life, people are going to be telling you who God is and what goodness is and what power is and what life is and what matters. And we get to come in here first and not, not tell kids, this is what you have to think, or this is what this means, but to, um, but to come together in a particular way and to just trust that planting these stories in the hearts of children in the context of a community that's joyful and fun and generous, um, that that's just real deep subversive work. And to be able to welcome in families and, you know, people who are unfamiliar to us and just say, come in and be part of this. And, you know, we're not charging you any money. And, you know, we're just doing this because we uh, love the Lord and want to create a beautiful gift for your children and experience, want them to have friends together. I mean, it's just, it's so good. And I think that's kind of when we talk about what is, what does it mean to say the kingdom of God is among us. And and I think our minds, our fallen minds are so drawn to like, well, it means we're going to get the right kind of person in the presidency or, you know, the Paris climate accords are going to be passed and followed and like all these institutions and all these. And I, I mean, I care about all of that stuff. Um, but I think 
it really does start small and we can get so overwhelmed, so overwhelmed hearing stories like the ones you heard on the news. And, and it's not that I don't, that we shouldn't care about those and grieve them because we should, but I think our active resistance is to say, okay, well, what, what kinds of communities are we going to create for people that, that push back against that, right? That will create spaces of welcome and will create spaces where we show up to serve and where we don't need to be affirmed and we don't need to win a trophy and we don't need to be on the news that we can just do a good thing, you know, strive to do a good thing for the sheer and sole purpose of pleasing the Lord and just the the power that's in that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that part of what we're seeing in our politics today is a pushback because of something else happening. I think there are some um, wickedly smart people who saw the response to things like the George Floyd murder, and when they saw protesters, many of them young white people, I think that caused some very powerful people in our country to say, okay, we, we've got to do something to prevent them from these kinds of communities forming, communities of passionate compassion and care and understanding, so that when things like this happen, there's not um, sympathy, empathy, compassion. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the reality is, God is having God's way with the world. And I think God has been having God's way with the world. And I think, you know, evil is real and that we have an enemy who's very good at his job. And I'm not downplaying that at all. But I think, you know, we were talking about this last week when we were getting ready to preach on Easter Sunday that, you know, having, having hope which is different than confidence or optimism, but having hope in the goodness of God and saying, you know, I just think these are the values of the kingdom and I'm going to, to the best of my frail and flawed ability, align myself with these values. And I'm not going to worry about whether it looks likely to produce a victory or to produce change. Um, I, I think that's the path to freedom and to abundance. And I think particularly as pastors, you know, I, I, th- I think we all um, are in danger of being like controlled and held captive by a lie. And, you know, if at one end of um, ministry, the lie is, well, your community is too small and too, um, you know, weak and too feeble and double-minded to nothing you do there will matter. And, and at the other end of the spectrum, it's, well, your community is so big and, and has so many resources that you can't risk it. And so you just need to, you know, stay in this very narrow range of acceptability. And, and I, so we just end up paralyzed and unable to faithfully, um, make choices that will lead to what 
appears to be and experientially is real loss and real suffering and real failure and real rejection. And because we don't have hope in the cross, we let we we let that um, stop us because we think, well, if that happens, it'll be the end and sort of it's all up to me. And so I got to pull it off instead of having real hope in the resurrection and saying, like, no, I really believe that this is happening and I don't need to make it happen. And what I do want is to participate in it. And and so anyway, I just think, you know, we don't sometimes um, we don't attend to the places that resurrection is is blooming and sprouting forth in our context because it just looks small and sweet, weak and meaningless. And, you know, in the light of everything that's happening in the world, spending, you know, four half days with 40 kids um, and 10 teenagers just seems like a pathetic, naive waste of time. But I just think that's the way the kingdom comes. I was sharing just yesterday um, with some folks at Dorada Church about you guys being in vacation Bible school this week during spring break. And folks were really astonished by it. Um, and their conclusion was, and, and I, I love this, their conclusion was, oh, that came out of not trying to do something big and impressive, mm -hmm. but simply trying to meet a need in the neighborhood of spring break. Parents uh, who have nine to five still have to go to work. Where are they going to send their kids? Babysitters cost. Oh, the church is doing this ministry thing. What what a gift to parents. It, it It's a small, a small thing when you look at it, but it's a huge gift to these families in your community. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of the problem is when you're, when you're sort of thinking about the resources and how to do it, like it, it, it is kind of, you can talk yourself out of it because it's both a small thing and an enormously huge thing, right? Because you have to get, you know, all the people in place and, and the money it costs to provide the meals and supplies and all that stuff. And you can just sort of easily let yourself off the hook by saying both, this is too hard and too much for us. And also it's too little and not worth it. Right. And I just think that's how, that's how following after Jesus always feels, right? Like this is requiring too much of it, me, and it's unreasonable. And why would I do this? Cause it won't make a difference either. Anyway. Eating of the 5,000. Yeah. And I just think that that's where we get stuck. And that's kind of the, the, you know, just looking, taking seriously the gospel as the way of Jesus, right? Like I think so often we're taught to see like, okay, well, this is this is truth, and then how can we go and commodify this? And and since we have the truth, how can we, you know, leverage our our cultural, um, you know, uh, cultural agency and our resources? And how can we, you know, impose this truth on others instead of saying like, no, God's truth comes with God's way? And so, what did Jesus do? I mean. He meandered around. He remained open to interruption. He allowed himself to be in conversations with people that his community warned him were corrupt and off limits. He he invested in people who were clearly um, never gonna change, like Zacchaeus, like you know, like Jarius, and and so I think you know being open to saying like, look, the Spirit of God is doing something in the world, and how can we just remain committed and open and intentional about seeking that out and just not be so worried about um, 
look what the culture is going to think about us. And I think it's that sort of weirdness of both really wanting to constantly be outwardly focused and also having a real detachment from how the surrounding community sees and values us. Um, so I don't know. I just think we, we need to um, recover our sense of awe and wonder and invitation that wherever we are, um, the spirit of the Lord is there. And I don't know what, what, you know, radical thing the Lord might call us to do, whether that's, the radicalness of doing nothing and waiting on the Lord or the radicalness of saying and taking postures that will implode our lives and court lots of controversy or the radicalness of, you know, doing works of um, serving and caring that appear to be a a waste of a life. Um, But, you know, the kingdom grew one on one on one. And, and I, Anyway, so I, I just, I, I'm grateful for this week and I, I'm grateful. I felt like the Holy Spirit really, um, you know, imparted to me before we get started that, you know, I could show up for that every day feeling like a, a pseudo martyr, like, oh, here I am, I'm, you know, <laughs> or I could show up and say, like, I, we're doing this because we sincerely believe the Lord is leading us to do it. And there's joy in this and it will be um, challenging and it will be tiring, but um, I, I, I want to have zeal for it. And, um, and, and it was a great gift and I'll, and, and in the weeks leading up to it, there were lots of moments where like, you know, we didn't have the the staff, like the helpers we needed, the leaders we needed. And then I thought we weren't going to have any kids. And then, um, you know, but it was beautiful. And, you know, 10, 10 of our teenagers were there, um, in the role that we call shepherds. So they're the sort of counselors of the groups of kids. And it's just so beautiful. And to think about just all the ways that the, I, I believe, I trust the Holy Spirit is planting seeds and the way those will bear fruit, you know, who knows when down the line and those kids themselves might never be conscious of a way that their souls have been shaped or, you know, something was started in them that was, you know, you know, watered and tended to by other people, you know, no more, no one will ever know. But I just, I think that the freedom in Christ is knowing that nothing good that we do surrender to God's will will ever be wasted. And so, you know, that's just exciting. I mean, it's a beautiful, it was a beautiful week. And also it's Friday morning and I'm very glad that we only, only did it for four days because it was really tiring, <laughs> but it was good. And now you just have a sermon to write for Sunday. Yep, just yeah. that. It's no, no biggie. No biggie. No. That's good. What are you thinking about? Well, um, well, first let me uh, say that we are recording outside. So if you hear birds chirping and planes flying overhead. Sorry, we not are sorry. outside on uh, Kate's uh, I know, and porch. I feel really bad because you have terrible pollen allergies, and this porch is, like, covered in pollen, and I'm very sorry. So if Yolanda was coughing, he does not have the COVID. He has a friend who's a terrible, messy, Well, and I just came back from uh, Georgia yesterday where the tree pollen is really, really Hi, and so uh, yeah, I've been struggling with sinus issues for the past three days. 
Uh, what am I thinking about? Well, I was driving back yesterday morning. We left uh, Atlanta at 6 a.m. yesterday, and I was listening to the Jude 3 podcast. It was a podcast on, let's see, um, post-COVID depression. And um, let's see, it was an interview with, oh, I can't think of the therapist's name. His first name is Malik. I can't think of his last name. Uh, but he was saying, you know, there is uh, a rise in... Um, depression some of it is uh, you know people waking up in the morning and feeling sad or tired um, and some of it is clinical depression and uh, but he also used a term that I've heard before but it's just been one of those terms floating in the air never really thought much about it and that is toxic positivity and he's saying that there's depression in the church uh, because of this toxic positivity and that is uh, what he means by that is uh, the tendency within church culture to um, so focus on the goodness and greatness of God that we don't leave room to say how we're truly feeling yeah and that to say how you're truly feeling or how you're truly doing in many church cultures um, is responded to as a lack of faith. And so there's a tendency among Christians to say, I'm fine, I'm fine. Not, no, not just I'm fine, but, um, you know, God is good all the time and all the time. God is good and my life is great. I'm blessed and highly favored and uh, everything like that. And, and he says this is especially true for church leaders, that there is a pressure on us to present a certain way to be um, joyful, in control, having it together. And few of us have places and spaces where we can honestly say, hey, I'm not well. Hey, I'm struggling. I feel like my life or my ministry is falling apart or my spiritual health is uh, in a valley. It's in a pit right now. We, we just don't have spaces. And I'm grateful um, for our friendship. I don't have a lot of colleagues, I, you and, and a couple other folks, that I, I feel comfortable enough, you know, saying, mm, I'm, I'm really not doing so well. But um, I also feel the pressure, um, what the podcast was talking about, of presenting to the church a side of me that isn't, dare I say, always my full authentic self. Mm -hmm. um, and part of my thinking is, you know, I don't want to, I don't want the church's ministry to become about caring for its pastor. I don't want the church to have a sense that, you know, if the pastor isn't doing well, then we must not be doing well. The church isn't doing well. Oh, no, the whole world is going downhill, right? I, I don't want to um, pass on <laughs> any any of my negativity to the church. And so there are many times, and I, and I, I think I'm especially guilty of this on a Sunday morning. I mean, because sometimes I'm conflicted uh, because I am... I am thrilled 
I mean, hardly a Sunday goes by that I'm not genuinely thrilled and amazed that I get to do this work. Yeah. I mean, it's what I've wanted to do for a long time. It's just amazing that I get to stand up and call the people to worship and under the high priesthood of Jesus lead God's people in worship. That is amazing that God has called me to do that. Uh, and so I want to present to the church the authentic joy of that. But at the same time, there are many Sunday mornings when we begin worship and my life is not altogether well, and I am not altogether well, and I am exhausted from the week, and I am concerned about this thing or that thing, and it's hard to find a space in the context of worship to say those things. I, I think it's really complicated because obviously to have a space where we have to lie to one another and say that we, you know, say that we're good when we're not. I mean, that's not a true space. That's not a healthy space. And, and the spirit of God is a spirit of truth. And so I think, um, that, you know, that's deeply problematic. And I also think, um, you know, it, it, we tend to think that everything's binary, right? So either I'm good or I'm bad. Either I'm I'm happy or I'm sad. Either right. I'm depressed or I'm trusting. And I think the truth is most of the time we're we're a mix, True. right? Um, you know, I sometimes I have hope and hope feels like I'm hope does feel like confidence. Um, and sometimes I have hope and hope feels like, I mean, I love that phrase, like when hope is like a fish hook in your mouth, right? Like it's just something like, I wish I could just, I've never heard that, but I love it. I know it's from a poem and it's definitely not Kate Murphy's phrase. I will have to Google it up, but I mean, sometimes hope is just really painful, right? Because if you could just let go and think this is just what it is, it's not going to get better. I'm going to resign myself to it. And, and anyway, so I think part of it is just sort of making sure that we can really complicate that narrative that we're as a you know, there are going to be some moments where they are mountaintop moments and there are going to be some moments where we're just in the depths of the valley of despair. And most of our life, we're going to live somewhere in between the continuum. And then I think, you know what, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast. I think that one of the things that is tricky and challenging about being a pastor is I think, I mean, you and I feel that as a pastor, we have a dual role. So we are a we are followers of Jesus, like almost all the other everyone people else. in our community, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we have some seekers in our community, but we're we're followers of Jesus, like everyone else in our community. Sure. There's no hierarchy at the cross. We are brothers and sisters. We are friends of Jesus, and that's our common ground. And so there's real mutuality in that, and it's really appropriate to bear one another's burdens and celebrate one another's joys. So, so that, and in that context, you know, to come in and say, you know, things are really hard right now and here's what I need and can you care for me? That's really appropriate. Um, and then also, we, but we do have another role that we play. We've been, we're shepherds, right? Under shepherds. And so there is a sense that um, we need to be able to 
um, be healthy enough and take stewardship of our spiritual and emotional health so that we can um, prepare, you know, fulfill the role that God has called us to fill for God's people. And, and I think the challenge is, you know, there are times when you don't share the fullness of who you are because you are functioning in your role as a shepherd. And that's not duplicitous or deceitful. Um, because as you said, you have other places where you can go and say, you know, this is where I'm struggling. And then I think there are times when you have to say to your community, Hey, I I can't, uh, you know, I need a break from this role or maybe I need to step away from this role. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, but I think it's hard because we, we, I think part of the sort of another way you could phrase it as toxic positivity, or you could phrase it as, I think like a, a marketplace, um, in infection of what the pastoral role is. I think you have a lot of people explicitly pushing pastors to say, nope, you don't have a dual role in the community. You are the professional Christian. Mm -hmm. You are the pseudo therapist, the theological expert. You do not have personal relationships with people in your community. You have boundaries that are really walls and it is not appropriate for you to, um, you know, share any part of your, um, nuanced personal life. And, and I, I see that. And we, we were talking before and I, I mean, I am not, I am not a leader in the presbytery of Charlotte and I am not trying to be, (laughs) I'm a grateful (laughs) member of the community. And so I recognize that there's a, there's just a lot of factors at play in different choices that are made that I, I don't know what they are. And so I'm not second guessing whether these choices are right or wrong, but you know, we have boundary training that we have to do every three years, three years, four years uh, as pastors. And, um, and it has been completely outsourced and automated so that you just, you, you pay your 50 bucks and you go to an online training seminar and there's no discussion and it's, you know, manufactured by, you know, a, a monolithic, um, you know, and, and just the, you know, it is this very much like you're not a therapist, you're not a psychiatrist, but you should take all of the, um, all of the culture around that professionalized un you know, caring profession, but with huge boundaries and just superimpose it onto church life. And I find it just really disappointing. I don't, um, I, I don't think that in order to prevent, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, or financial abuse, I don't think the answer to that is just to completely disconnect in any meaningful ways and and not be friends with your congregation and not trust people um, to deal with the nuances of real humans and different kinds of relationships. So I um, I, I just think it's tricky and that's part of it because I, you don't want to be toxically positive. You want to be able to, to disclose to your congregation and model for them. This is how you follow the Lord when you're depressed. This is how you follow the Lord when you're in a dry spell. This is how you trust, um, what you have experienced in the past and how you seek the Lord and the goodness of God in experiences of loss and suffering. So, so you want to show up as your full self. And you also want to say to folks, in my role, especially on a Sunday morning as I'm shepherding, I, I want to, to come um, spiritually, emotionally ready to shepherd so that people 
who are seeking the Lord or who are struggling know that they can come to me and they're not worried about overburdening me. And if I get to a point where I can't do that, then what serving the congregation needs to look like is me reaching out to get help because I don't want to leave the flock without a shepherd. And because I know that I'm not the only person who can be the shepherd and because I'm supposed to have the spiritual maturity to trust the Lord to care for me and my congregation, even if the job needs to get paused or, or set aside for a while. And I, I think that's just the, the real struggle um, is um, I think we're not getting very good models about how to be whole, healthy humans in relationship with God and one another as pastors. Um, and I, and I frankly think we as pastors, because we've had seminary training, have a lot of expectations about how we are owed a certain kind of job and a certain lifestyle by our churches, regardless of whether or not we are spiritually or emotionally able to do the work. And so we are dishonest with ourselves and other people when we do need breaks. Yeah. A few years ago, I had a church uh, ministry coach, Tom Bandy, and I remember he told me that uh, people outside the church, especially seekers, are not looking for teachers. They're not looking for experts. They're looking for um, examples. They're looking for models of the Christian life, people that they can watch and walk with. And in order to do that, to be that for someone, you have to share your life. Mm-hmm. And that means the, you know, the good, bad, and the ugly, the ups and the downs. And that's not what we were trained to do. Right. And I think that's a part of saying, like being willing to say, hey, we're going to try this ministry initiative and I, I'm just going to go, you know, full out and knowing that it might be a flop, it might be a failure. And then I'll have to walk that out with my congregation on the other side. And that will maybe not be comfortable for my ego, but will be good for all of our souls to know that, you know, Jesus is still risen, even if you have to cancel vacation Bible school at the last minute. Right. And, and I, you know, I expressed on Sunday, um, we was preaching about resurrection hope and I expressed a deep hope that I have for our congregation, um, in the next couple of months. And I, and I, and I thought about it, like, do I really just want to say my, I hope we'll see the res- resurrection in X way? Like, do I, do I want to just say that? Because it might not happen, right? Like the congregation might not vote to do it. It all That's might risky. come together, right? Like, do I just want to say, I hope now I said, I hope I didn't say this is the will of the Lord I said, I hope. And then I thought, you know, I do want to say it because a, it's true, <laughs> Because B, it's not a crime to hope something. Because C, I want to model for the congregation that just because I hope something, that doesn't mean that the it's the Lord's will. And C, if if my hope is in line with the will of God and it comes to pass, I think there's there's growth for all of us in a community to see what it looks like to boldly hope in the Lord. And and also, if it doesn't come to pass that way. I think there's real growth for us as a spiritual community to be able to say there's no shame in being mistaken in your hopes or disappointed in your hopes, right? Like on on a temporal sense, right? And to be able to model like, you know, I don't have to get my way and I don't have to always look like 
I'm omnipotent or omniscient because I'm not. And I'm not ashamed for that to be visible to my congregation. So, um, yeah, I just think we get stuck in these really um, small, inauthentic boxes when, I mean, sort of to make a full circle, when, when we're so worried about how we are being perceived by others that we don't feel free enough to inquire of the Lord and say, you know, what does it look like to be faithful to you in this next decision, in this season? Like, Lord, how much of my internal state should I share or not, right? That's like, a good question. what does it look like to show up in an authentic and in a healthy and in an appropriate way? And I think those are really important discussions to have, which is one reason I'm sad that, you know, we're outsourcing boundary training to a computer module because then there is no discussion. It's just these are the right answers and those are the wrong answers. And anything that's not in this binary is just doesn't exist. And I think, no, we do need to have conversations about boundaries a lot. And I think they need to be happening around a table. And um, so, anyway. So, what are you thinking about? I don't even remember. Oh, you don't remember? Oh, I know what I was going to say. I I, am. This is, I don't have any big profound thoughts about this, but um, one of the moments this past week that was just really poignant for me happened on Thursday. Um, I, I, with my friend, our friend Elizabeth, um, teach music with the kids and these VBS weeks, which is really lovely because we do a story every day and she writes this great um, children's songs that are just really intuitive and, and not didactic and just open up a lot of space for conversation and wondering. And the best is when sort of those, those um, really like kindergarten and up kids, you just sit in a circle and there's like 10 of them and they just start talking about, you know, how they feel about, you know, friendship and fear and struggle and trusting God. It's just really beautiful, right? And just moving so far beyond, you know, let me quiz you on the elements of this story. I mean, it's just beautiful. And um, we were sitting with a group of these um, kids in the oldest group. So they're fourth and fifth graders. And we were talking about, um, uh, we were talking about Abraham and Sarah and like waiting on promises and, um, you know, what to do when, when things are hard and how sometimes, you know, there are messengers, messengers from God and angels and gifts that are around us in disguise. And then the kids started talking about school for them lately. And, um, they do not have teachers. I mean, it was so heartbreaking, which I know in my own family, like my, my first graders teacher left at the end of November, my eighth graders math teacher left in December, my 11th graders biology teacher left in January and my first grader got a new teacher, but my, my older girls, they just don't have teachers. Like, so they math for my, my middle schooler is an online course, um, which means she didn't get a spring break cause they had to keep going on the online course and it'll be done in the middle of May, even though school doesn't get out until the second week in June. Cause it's an online course and it just is what it is. And there's no, there's, I mean, there theoretically is a teacher specifically who reviews all their works, but you never get to ask a question in real time. There's just no, there's no one. And my 
11th grader doesn't even have an online course. Like she just gets assignments and then another teacher in the school grades them. And I sort of hoped that maybe it was endemic to my girls' schools, but you know, the, um, the one other youth who was the shepherd, I mean, he was saying he has five classes and he has two teachers. So three of his classes just don't have a teacher. The other high schooler in the group said the, the same thing. And then these little elementary kids, like they're just talking about all their teachers who have left and like not understanding like what happened and if they're going to get a new teacher and like this teacher is mean, but at least I have a teacher. And I mean, I just, I mean, it was just breaking my heart to see them trying to understand and really, I mean, as is appropriate for them, like what they're thinking is like, well, we, we're not good enough or we were too bad and that's why teachers won't come or that's why they don't want to be with us and not at all being able to understand like, you know, your teachers can't afford to live in your community or your teachers can make more money behind the counter at Qdoba than working 12-hour days and doing lockdown drills, right? Like they just can't understand all of the systemic forces that are going into um, dismantling public education, at least in North Carolina. And what it is reduced to in their head is like the labels put on themselves, like, you know, we're bad kids or they're good kids or, you know, and it just, I mean, it was heartbreaking. And I'm just thinking about you know, what does that mean? And also recognizing that like these, these systems, which are under so much pressure, um, the teachers who are staying, and I'm so grateful teachers are staying, but with the amount of pressure that's put on them, it's really hard for them to show up with the full emotional bandwidth to, um, you know, be, the adult in the room for these kids and the kids were saying like, you know, what happens a lot. And I hear this from my kids too, that, um, you know, the one, you know, we like, we can't go to recess until every kid in the room is doing X behavior. And so that means there's always one kid who isn't. And so that means we never get to go to resource, right? Recess. And I'm thinking like, oh yeah, this idea. And I see it, you have it in, see it happening kind of in churches a lot where it's kind of this like, de facto collective punishment. Like we could do this great thing, except I know that so-and-so will be a real jerk about it. And I'm scared of what will happen. So we won't do anything until I can get so-and-so on board. And then like, we never get to go to recess. Like we never get to do the, um, joyful, exciting, um, you know, risk taking ministry initiative because we have the least mature people, in the community who are controlling um, everything that has to do in the community. And so I don't, I mean, I don't like the one thing I know for sure is, um, you know, teachers are just um, front lines of the kingdom of God on earth. And I'm so grateful for them. And I have no, not even an iota, (laughs) um, an aleph of, judgment on on how um, they show up to do their work because it is so hard and also I'm really just sad and grieving how many young people 
are going into their first sort of public, you know, experiences with the public and are, are not finding adults there to support them when, you know, they're studying a challenging subject like math or French or dealing with, um, you know, conflict or, you know, and they're absorbing the labels of like, I don't have a teacher because I'm, you know, I, I go to a bad school and we're bad kids. And it just was so sobering and heartbreaking. And I don't know, I don't know what the answer is for us as um, followers of Jesus, because I don't, you know, I think a lot of people would say like, well, it's easy, let's start a private school. And I don't, you know, to, to start a school that would not be accessible um, to all, I don't know, I, that doesn't, I'm not saying it's not the right answer for other people, but it doesn't feel like the right answer to me. So um, anyway, it was, um, it was really, I'm just thinking about it. I don't have any. Yeah. It sounds like, um, you know, what has been in existence for a long time, that is certain schools, certain areas of town are labeled bad. And when you come out of that, you have, a voice in your head saying that you are that, you are less, you are bad, you are whatever. And that becomes a burden that you carry and a spirit that you fight. And so it just seems like that is being expanded. And of course, it primarily affects um black and brown children, um, but also poor white children. And I think it is a serious problem. Well, and I just think it, it, it is like, there's obviously like real justice and systemic racism issues here. And I also just think we live in a culture that prizes money and power over everything else. And so teachers are just seen as people who are not professionals and who are not really gifted and talented because we make this assumption that if they were, they'd be investment bakers, right? And so I think like what we're really seeing is kind of the 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 fruit of the greed is good Gordon Gecko tree is finally coming to bear that we we raised a whole several generations of people that said like serving others and kindness and nurturing and you know, seeking the flourishing of other people's that's for suckers and chumps. And so now we, we don't have people in these areas because we don't value them. So we, we have, you know, we thank soldiers for their service and I, I understand that and, and appreciate it, but nobody would think of thanking a teacher for their service. You know, like you'll do teacher appreciation once a month, but, uh, but people think like, Oh, well, if I don't have kids in school, like, you know, screw those teachers. I don't care. And not recognizing that like everyone that you depend on, on a daily basis had a teacher. Right. And so we don't have all the people that you do value. And so I, I, you know, I just think, and particularly looking at how the most challenging set of kids to be with, I mean, they were delightful, but the most challenging set of kids to be with were the preschoolers and, you know, talk about people who are just completely, um, un, 
undervalued and unseen and uncelebrated and 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 unresourced as early childhood education because we have a narrative in this country that um well the good kids are home with their mothers and um everybody else should be home with their mothers and you know so i i just think it it is a really um it's a really hard uh, well, and hard i would thing connect to, to this not only do we undervalue teachers, but we undervalue education in general. I was having, um, or I had a conversation with a young man in his 20s, not a member of Derrida Church, uh, a few weeks ago, and he's wrestling whether or not to go back to college. And (laughs) what he's wrestling with is, does it even matter? Does it make a difference? Who cares if I have a degree? And you know me, I'm, I'm a pretty laid back guy. I often do not have instant opinions or instant opinions that I wish to share. And he wasn't even talking to me. He was talking to someone else. And I jumped in the conversation and I said, no, you must go back to school. You must get that degree. Do not let anyone tell you that this doesn't matter because there are voices in our society right now saying, you don't need a, a, a college education. Go get of some kind of skill, which I'm not knocking at all. That's great and wonderful. But there's, I, I, I sense that there is a movement to create or expand the number of people who have no other option than low-wage jobs. Right. I mean, I think our economy runs on misery and desperation, yeah. right? Like our economy runs on the fact that there will be people who will be so desperate and so perpetually close to complete and other financial ruin that they will never say, no, I need a predictable schedule or no, I need a living wage. Like they will just show up because they think if I don't you know, my kids will be on the streets and my kids will be taken away from me. And I do think that predominantly we live in a country that before it is anything else is a capitalist society. And so even when we talk about education, you know, the kind of education that's prized is competition, right? Like either literal athletics or can you compete to get into a certain elite school? And it's not about education for the sake of shaping and knowledge and nurture and understanding. It's about how can we give people certain skills so that they can get certain jobs so that they can either not be a drain on society or they can um, produce more commodities or have enough money to consume enough commodities, you know, because we just think that buying and selling is the, is the key to health in our communities. And we, and to the extent that people would say like, well, my, and I, you know, and I have a junior in high school who's thinking about college and we've been very clear to her that we will not let you go into debt. So I think, you know, there's nuance in this conversation. I definitely understand, you know, having deep suspicion about letting 18 year olds sign up for a life of debt slavery, but to reduce the whole thing to, well, there's no point in getting a liberal arts degree because it won't pay for you in terms of wages earned, I mean, just it just really says a lot. It really reveals a lot about what we think actually is the indicator of a good life. Um, and I think particularly you have 
you know, this is why teachers of elementary students, particularly elementary students in certain areas of town that have been labeled, you know, disadvantaged, you know, they're not seen as coming into a school full of assets. And they are, (laughs) they absolutely are, but they're seen as, you know, like you're, you're here to manage a problem as opposed to unleash, you know, the, the gifting of these, um, young people who will be, um, forming and shaping in wonderful ways are, are, are present and our future. So anyway, yeah, I, one of the greatest gifts of my life, um, besides, salvation in Jesus and my great parents and the family that I was raised in is the value of a liberal arts education. Um, I am grateful for having known the late William Ramsey, um, professor of religion and philosophy at Bethel University in McKenzie, Tennessee. Um, He pushed me to take as many philosophy classes as I could. He pushed me to take two years of Greek in undergrad. I mean, he just really pushed me uh, to learn. And uh, just today, you were showing me an article about a book somebody wrote about um, we need to throw out the idea of God being omnipotent and blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, I, I read a little bit of it. And Philosophy 101 came to mind. I was like, well, this is trash because I got this, you know, sophomore year of of philosophy. We just cannot afford in this country to undermine public education, undermine the work of teachers on one end, and then on the other end, tell people they don't need a college education or make it so costly that they can't afford it and think that – the society will prosper mm-hmm. in yes. an era of AI and fake news. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we have probably said get off my lawn in as many ways as a person could say it today. <laughs> so <laughs> we should probably wrap it up and continue our streak of saying we're going to talk about our sermons and then not talking about them. So, um, Thank you for listening. And if you would like to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian, you can go to www.deridachurch.faithlifesites.org. And don't even look at me funny because that is correct. He's looking like I got it wrong, but I did not get Faith it wrong. Faithlifesites.com. But it's close oh, enough. Dang it. Or you can check out their YouTube channel, or you can check out their podcast on Podbean, but not anywhere else. You have to go to the Podbean website to get the Deride to Church podcast. And if you want to find out about what God is doing, that was shade. Did everybody feel that shade? Shade. Mm -hmm. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at the Grove Presbyterian Church, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. Org. You can check out our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, the Grove Church Podcast. Uh, look for the green tree. You can check out our YouTube channel um, or you can come worship with us at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings. And then you can skip the sermon and go to Derrida at 11 o'clock. So there you, you go. can go both places. Anyway, thanks for listening. The dog is barking. We're done. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>